0: Let's just turn back to Mark chapter 10. One thing missing is what we've entitled the message tonight. We'll buy in a wee word of prayer as we uh, turn to the Scriptures and uh, to the preaching of God's Word this evening. Lord, we do thank Thee tonight of the Savior that shed His blood for sinners and rebels and wretches such as we. And we thank thee, O God, for thy grace that has reached down to many and lifted us from the mirey clay and set our feet on the rock, Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord tonight with a new song, with the song of the soul set free. Lord, we pray for others who haven't. They can't sing because they haven't experienced what Nicodemus was to experience—been born again of Thy Spirit. Lord, I pray tonight that I would take away every prop, every hindrance that men and women are depending upon. And O oh God, that Lord, today would be as it were naked before a holy God. And Lord, they could do none else than run, flee to Christ, and seek His salvation. Pray, Lord, you bring us into this passage. Give us, Lord, help. Give us understanding. Pray of thy spirit and brood over each and every heart. Give us help in the pulpit. O oh, God, fill me with thy spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us, Lord, those prevailing words that there may be signs following the preaching of thy word. We know not, Lord, where the word goes. We know not, Lord, who listens to it even beyond tonight. And Lord, we thank Thee for the promise it will not return unto Thee void, but it shall accomplish that which You please. So Lord, may it accomplish much for Thy glory tonight. For we ask these things in our Saviour's name. Amen. The world economy seems never to be too far from the news these days. The financial difficulties are being felt by some people. Although I have to say that maybe the media is over-egging that. I believe that a former generation knew harder times than we ever have. We can say tonight that things are not being rationed as they were during the war years. Maybe that brings things into a proper perspective. But no matter, maybe we could say there's a change afoot. From the days of prosperity and indulgence to days where there is the tightening of the financial belt. What of course is left out of it all is the fact that God is sovereign and that his promises to his people shall never fail. The psalmist could say he had never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Psalm 37. And he was an old man then. He knew the promises of God to be faithful. But we can think of economists tonight, indeed others, caught up in their little empire, going about to make money and only money. They have very little time for the things of God. They have very little time for the matters concerning their soul's salvation and their spiritual well-being. It is the most difficult thing for one who's trusting in riches to be saved. That is what the Lord taught us with the verses that we have read even tonight in course of this passage. And he described it or he illustrated it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the ladies in particular will appreciate how small the, the, the eye of a needle is. And you do well that you can get the thread through the eye of a needle without the glasses. There is a little picture there, of course. It has been suggested by some commentaries that there was a gate in the walls of the great city of Jerusalem. And it was so small, it was called the eye of a needle. And for the rider and the camel to get through, well, the rider had to get off the camel and he had to get the camel down if he could and get it in through that little gate. But it was a tight squeeze. And the Lord says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But men and women, why that is impossible with men, it is not impossible with God. And in the Scriptures we have Joseph of Arimathea. He's a rich man. We have also Zacchaeus. He's a rich man. But those men who were rich, yet they were saved by God's grace and they were assured of heaven. And sadly, while they may be examples, they may also be exceptions to the rule. For as we come across this passage, the Lord having spoken to the children, to the boys and girls, he said, suffer a little children to come unto me. He did more than the parents wanted him to do. The parents just brought the children that he might touch them. But he took them up in his arms and he blessed them. But having spoken to the children, he had also concern for the young people. Because he speaks to one who has become known to us as a rich young ruler. And when we read of this rich young ruler, this young man, there's a sense that we immediately fall in love with him. There's much that endears us to him. There's an earnestness about him. There's an honesty about this young man. And yet the Lord was to say some pointed words to him. And I want us to consider one thing I lackest. It could be this young man is in this gathering this evening. There's much that is wholesome. There's much that is endearing about you. And yet the Lord himself would come along and he would whisper in your ear the same words. There's one thing missing. One thing thou lackest. Why did the Lord have to say those words? Well, if you look at my text, verse 21, Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said unto him one thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt a treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Won't you notice, first of all, his proximity. His proximity. In all the gospel record, you'll be pressed hard to find a sadder incident of what stares us in the face tonight concerning this young man. If there is one thing which is clear throughout the Word of God, particularly so where the Gospel is concerned, then it's this, that it is possible, very possible, to be near the Gospel and yet not be in that saving relationship with Christ. The Lord himself, speaking in the course of what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you'll find it back in, in the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel. He was to say in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In, in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. There's many that will be able to put themselves in those categories, and yet the Lord's answer is, I never knew you. They're so close to the gospel, so close to the, the word of God, and yet they're not in the saving relationship with Christ. You can think of those who were so near to the Lord and yet they did not know Him as Savior. You can think of Judas. Judas was one of the very twelve disciples. One who heard the prince of preachers speak the words of life. One who saw the miracles that he wrought. It was Judas who knew the presence and the company of the Savior. Moreover, it was Judas who got so near, so near to the Lord, listen to this, that he planted a kiss on his cheek. I tell you, he got near, didn't I? But from that, he went to a suicide's grave and to a lost Christ-rejector's hell. What about Pilate? Pilate got close enough to the Lord. He could see His glorious majesty. He could understand that He was a just man and one who had done no wrong. He could say to the great crowd before Him, I find no fault in Him. And yet with that image pressed upon His heart and mind, He was to send Him to be crucified and He went to a lost eternity Himself. King Agrippa. King Agrippa, in hearing God's servant preach of Christ, of his death and his resurrection, who was brought to that place where he had to say, almost, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But the silence of the Scriptures would indicate that he never came to that time when he was altogether persuaded. You see, he was close proximity to Christ. He was in close proximity to the message of salvation. But he never embraced it. And in this passage, we have a young man who got within close proximity to the Lord. The Savior, having blessed the children, was about to make his way toward Jerusalem. His time was nigh when he would be delivered into the hands of evil and cruel and wicked hands of men who would crucify him upon that cross. But while the Savior was upon that way, there came this young man running to him, kneeling down, desiring to meet with him before he was gone. He was a young man who was so near the Lord in the physical sense, he could behold that face that would be marred more than any man's. That brow that soon would have the thorns pressed down into it. He could see those cheeks from which the soldiers would soon pluck the hairs from. He could see that mouth from which flowed the words of life and truth and of whom there was no guile. He was in close proximity to the Savior and in a sense he got even closer because he reached his very heart. We're told that the Lord beholding him in our text loved him. The Lord had a compassion for this young man. Why did he come to be so close to the master? Look at the words of verse 17. for it will tell us the answer. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternally? This young man was found running because there's a very important question that was troubling and gripping his heart. Now usually it was the case, it would have been the distress of the body that caused men to get to Christ. And there were those who had ailments. and Maybe they were carried there and others were brought there. Maybe they were blind and they needed to get the Lord. They wanted that physical healing. But not so with this man. His distress was of the soul. It was about the hereafter. And such was his distress and concern. It didn't matter what others thought about him. He was a rich man. We know that from Luke's account. Chapter 18 and verse 23 of that account. We'll get there in a wee moment or two. But that status, the way of life, was forgotten as he came running. And he flung himself down with his face into the dust before the Savior. He came with a very valid question on his heart. He needed answered. Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? All his life, this young man had been striving to do works which were pleasing to God. He was the one who knew the commandments. He sought to keep them as best to his ability, but yet deep down in his heart he knew that there was a possibility, the very strong possibility, that it wasn't enough. And he had no peace of heart to know that he had eternal life. There was still something that he needed to do to make sure of his entrance into glory. But yet for all that, we read that he was to turn his back on the claims of the Lord. As verse 22 tells us, he went away grieved. Those words tell their own sad story. For this young man was so near to the Lord, yet he went away still having no saving relationship with him. And that, my friend, is a tragedy. A tragedy that is being repeated in this day and generation. A tragedy whereby there are young men and women and older who have heard the message of the gospel, they've heard the claims of Christ to their own soul, they have seen them through the pages of holy scripture, they have seen them through the lives uh, of others around them, though those lives that have been changed by the power of the gospel. There have been those times when the Lord is through very near through a spirit, and young man, young woman tonight, older men, not woman, and others have heard the call of the Lord. Come, take up the cross and follow me. Are you in the meeting tonight? And yet for all that, you still have no relationship with the Lord. Does this sum up your spiritual condition this evening? The proximity. But you know, there's something else that comes near to us tonight, and that is his profession. You know, that which what endears us to this man is his open confession of the sort of life that he lived. Look at verse 20, for example. He answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Here is one who had high standards in life. We're not thinking here upon Zacchaeus. And you'll all know we went up the tree and all of that. But he was guilty of deception. He was an old wretch. He robbed the people of more money than he should have. We're not thinking here even of a Saul in his unsaved days who went about causing havoc among the church of Jesus Christ, putting men and women in prison just because they were believers. We're thinking of an upright man. A man who had good standards in life. A man who had the Bible in his house. A man who read Exodus 20. He knew the commandments. And his conscience attested to the fact that he had kept those commandments that are mentioned here as far as he was concerned. His conscience was clear that he had not committed adultery. He hadn't killed. What's more, as far as his mind could stretch, he had kept those laws from his youth up. Here is what we would many, many, many would call today as a good living person. Do you ever hear that term? Ah, oh, he's good loving. He was one who had high standards. You know, there's something else. Very most likely, he held possession. We may tend to forget. Yeah, this was a young ruler. If you turn to that passage in Luke's account of it, Luke chapter 18, uh, you will see it in the words of verse 18 itself. And uh, there, Luke uh, also has this uh, this account. I said, and a certain ruler, certain ruler, you say, asked him saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A certain ruler. He had stood out among the Hebrew religious people. He'd been raised into a position of being a ruler among them. Here's a man who had impressed the hierarchy. But he was promoted, even though he was still young. He's a young ruler. His life was one which practises good living. He was an upright, respectable ruler among the people. But yet, dear souls tonight, for all that that commends him, we learn by the teaching of Christ that That it was was all just what he professed to be. He was yet a sinner. A sinner who needed Christ as, as his Savior. For when he approached the Lord, you'll note how the Savior was to teach him some vital gospel truths concerning himself and God. Firstly, look at verse 18, for example. He was questioned there. Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one that is God. He's questioned about this title. Why did you call me good master. Why did you call a savior good when there's only one who is good and that is God? And the question ought to have provoked a confession of the deity of Christ. Master, I call you good because thou art God. But there's no confession forthcoming. He didn't say that. And then further to that, the savior sought to make him aware of his own sinfulness. He wasn't as good as he professed to be, you see. The very fact that the Lord had said there's none good but God alone or God only implies to this young ruler that he himself also fell short of that mark. He also wasn't good And the Scriptures bear testimony, of course, with regard to all mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what position you might hold. It doesn't matter how upright you might be in the community or you think you are. You are one like this young ruler who needs Christ as your Savior. And if you're not saved, then the Lord would also declare you to be a sinner, as He did with this young man. All the boasting, all the professing of his own righteousness was nothing before this all-encompassing statement of the Savior. There's none good but one. That is God. He's akin, you see, to those whom the Apostle speaks about. If you turn over to Romans chapter 1. Apostle here is... Those in mind, the very same ilk, we might say. Look at the words of verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see, men and women can see by creation that there is a God. They're without excuse. God has given that general revelation of Himself. Verse 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Here's a young ruler, and his profession was that he was wise, but he was only a fool. These words of the Savior ought to have brought forth a confession of his sin. But as before, there's no such confession forthcoming. He professed to have a worthiness. He professed to have a righteousness. Lord, I've done these things from my youth up, but it was as nothing before the eyes of him who sees all things. And you'll note that the Savior then directed him to consider the law. Look at verse 19. Thou knowest the commandments. You see, the Lord knew them. The Lord knows every one of us. Knows your heart tonight. Knows what you're thinking tonight. And in the way, the Lord comes and he speaks to this man. This man came running to him. He says, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. He details some of the commandments. Those are the commandments that we would understand to be the second table of the law outlining our duty toward man. First law is our duty toward God. I said some. Because you see there's an omission of the last one for obvious reasons here. And if the young man had been alert, then he would have spotted that omission. Why did the Lord speak of God's law? You know, there's people today, there's boys and pulpits today, and they would tell us, oh, we don't need to go about the law. Don't need to speak about the law in the gospel. The Savior did. Why did he speak about the law? I think Galatians 3 and verse 24 reminds us, or gives us the answer. Because the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law is our schoolmaster. Now, of course, when you think of the schoolmaster, they're not like the schoolmasters today. The schoolmasters today are all nice and jolly and not much authority there. And there's no canes in the middle of the, uh, of the corner of the room. There's no ruler used. But when you think of those days, the Bible days, the schoolmaster was harsh. The schoolmaster, he administered chastisement. And that's the picture. The schoolmaster, the law is our schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. The law of God, you see, it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our total unworthiness. If I can give you an example, look at Romans chapter 7. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking. Verse 7. There's it easy to understand and remember. Romans 7 and 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. He says this, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. The law is given. And because of that law, we know that we're sinners. We know that we're lawbreakers. It's like going up the, the road there. And there's a big circle with a red thing around it and it says, 60 mile an hour. Well, you know that's the law. And you know if you go over 60, you're breaking the law. And Paul says, I wouldn't have known I was a sinner until I knew the law. The law said, thou shalt not covet. you understand? The law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law of God shows us our own sinfulness. And if we're seeking to know pardon from sin, then we're driven in penitence. What to do? driven to Christ, because He's the only Redeemer. He's the only Savior of a sinful mankind. Even the Lord Himself. Why Christ? Because He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't do away with it. He didn't sweep it under the carpet. The law still stands. But He came that He might fulfill it perfectly on our behalf, and He kept it perfectly. He never sinned. What can cleanse us from the guilt of our sin, having broken God's law? Nothing but the precious blood of the Savior, the one who went to the cross, fulfilling the law of God on our behalf, shedding his own blood because the law decreed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Sadly, even though this young ruler had the prince of preachers and he had the best of a teacher in God's law, Yet still there was no brokenness of heart over his sin. Instead, there's a clinging on to his empty profession. All these have I observed from my youth. That's the only answer he gives. Maybe this man's in the meeting tonight. There's much good about you. You're respected. Maybe you're a leader. You're respected. And you have an upright character and you do much that is good. But my dear loved one, learn this, that good works are not enough in the sight of the Lord. Good works are no substitute for your soul being born again and being saved. Good works will not give you acceptance with the Lord. This ruler was an excellent young man. He but he had a heart problem. His heart wasn't right with God. Alexander White, he's a famous Scottish preacher. Maybe you've come across him. While he was preaching upon this passage, he suddenly stopped. And he engaged himself in a mocking laughter representing the demons of hell as this young man came to join them. He rehearsed what they might have said. Kept the commandments. Aye, and you're here. I saw him. A man or woman sit under the preaching of the gospel. And the free church or other places for that matter. Good loving, doing their best. Yet they leave this scene of time only to find themselves among the demons of hell. You see, there's only one way to God's salvation. That is by accepting the Son of God as your Savior. When God looks upon you tonight, upon your heart, does He see a heart that has a profession? A profession to be right, a profession to be sealed, or instead when God looks upon your heart tonight, man, woman, child, young person, does he see a heart that possesses the Savior and is washed in his precious blood? This young man had a profession. But you know this young man has a poverty. The young ruler had a certain amount of wisdom about it. He had the right concern about his soul. He needed to have eternal life. He knew that. He came with a sense of a sense of urgency. There was this was an urgent matter. He came to the right person with his concerns, even the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to the one who was able to save the soul for time and for eternity. But his mistake was that he thought eternal life was a problem to be resolved. He was to find out it was a person to be received. The Savior was to gently show him the commandments which bear testimony to our relationship with God. They're summed up in Matthew chapter 12 in the words of verse 30. Matthew... Sorry, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And I shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. It's easier to say that we have no gods before us until it's put to the test. And that's what the Lord did to this young ruler. He brought the law before him. We've seen it. The old man could only say, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And that's where it comes into our text. He now gives him the test. He says, One thing's missing, one thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. If money and possessions weren't his God, the very commandment that he left out, then he would gladly give them up. He would gladly follow him. He would gladly exchange trusting in riches to trusting in the Redeemer for his soul's eternal welfare. You see, there was the answer to his question. But the appalling pity was that being faced with this choice he turned his back on the Christ of Calvary. Who was he? All reminds us, he that was rich yet became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He stood before the one who could give him eternal life, but yet he drew back, being challenged to forsake all and follow him. The price was too high. He went back to his gold, but he missed glory. A rich young ruler on earth, but a pauper for all eternity, as far as his soul is concerned. Think of what it might have been. If this this young man had have repented at the Savior's invitation, instead of being a nameless figure who stepped into the pages of holy writ for one short moment and then vanishes into the shadows as quickly again and into a lost eternity, he might have been a leader in the Church of Jesus Christ. He might have been a soul winner. He might have been singing in the choirs of heaven tonight. He's forever lost. It's too late for him. At least the silence of the scriptures, we have to come to that conclusion. But it's not yet too late for you. You see, man or woman, young person, you can make sure the ending of this passage is not the same ending in your life. If you will accept by faith what the Savior has done for you, At Calvary. An old preacher from the hills. He was a guest at a very posh dinner one night in the north of England. He was asked to give a speech, although he didn't really want to. He felt very conscious of his inferiority, especially in such a brilliant company that he was in. But he didn't want to miss the opportunity to say a word for the Lord. And so he rose to his feet and he said Gentlemen I am not well versed As you see I'm just a plain I'm just an ordinary man I don't know much about astronomy But I do know the bright and morning star I don't know much about botany But I do know the lily of the valley I do know the rose of Sharon And you know, men, I don't know much about geography, but I do know my way to the cross of Calvary. And after all, is that not the only knowledge that really matters? Men and women, that is the only knowledge that really matters for your soul. What a pity that this young man never accepted the Christ of Calvary. He says, one thing missing God's salvation. Through the person and the finished atoning work on the cross. What about you? Don't live. Don't die trusting in riches, but in the Redeemer, and then. You'll be eternally rich. You'll be richer than any man in this world. For you'll have treasures in heaven. I trust it is not said of you tonight, one thing missing. May the Lord bless His Word. And speak on to hearts. One hundred ninety-eight. And uh, we'll sing verses 1, 3, and 6. 1, 3, and 6, 2, nine, yeah. Lord, I thank Thee for Thy Word tonight. We thank the Lord, for the insight into this young ruler. And, O God, we recognize that he had a very valid question. He came to the right person. There was an urgency, but there was one thing missing. And, O God, we praise Thee tonight that men and women, young people, have heard the answer. It's Christ. And, O Father, we pray that they might recognize There's nothing they can do to obtain eternal life. The work has been done at the place called Calvary. The blood has been shed. And Lord, we need to depend on the blood to pardon us from sin. And I pray, Lord, that thou would, oh God, give that grace tonight to someone that they'll be able to say tonight, for the first time, I can call this Savior mine. Speak on when the preacher's voice is silent. Part us with thy blessing. Of mercy we pray. For we ask these things in our Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.